0: As Marian uh, was kind of talking about a little bit, you know, it's been, a, it's been kind of a weird second half of the week for us. Um, and so just kind of dealing with, with loss in general uh, is, is always difficult. And the flood of memories that it brings back when when somebody passes and so on and so forth, it's just it's just a part of life. But it takes you on this ride. It takes you on this journey. And uh, you just have to be prepared for the journey because it's not something that you can think through. It's not something that just, you know, you can just set some sort of formula on it and it's going to go away. It is something that just needs to be felt and lived and breathed. And so it's just interesting. And, And, you know, just this is just one more bit laid on all the other bits. And in talking to people that I'm counseling and just talking to just all of you in general, I know how much all of you and many of you are going through right now. How much change, how much um, disturbance there is in life, loss. It seems like there's just been this parade of loss for the last two and a half years. It's been amazing both collectively and uh, individually as well. And I keep hearing about this and I hear about the effect that it's having on us um, to, to be going through this kind of loss. And so suffering is something that has really, I think, been on my mind and probably on a lot of your minds right now as you're going through the things that you're going through. You know, what is it about this suffering? And uh, is it supposed to be this way? You know, it's, it's just all these questions that we have when life gets difficult, when things get scary. You know, when we start to question, you know, what is going on? Am I still in God's favor? You know, is, is this the way the world's supposed to be? Is there something that we can do to make it different? Can we pray it away? All these questions that arise when we go through difficult times. And so I wanted to address that this morning. We've been on a, on a roll leading up to the contemplative life because the contemplative life, this following of Jesus in contemplation, in the four S's, you know, the silence, the solitude, the stillness, the simplicity of life. To impose that on our lives is the way of Jesus, but for a very particular reason. And it has everything to do with the suffering that we encounter in life. Last week, we talked about the ugly duckling for those of you who are here or listen to the message. And the idea there was that this, this story of the ugly duckling, you know, the story of the, the, the yeah. one duck that was different than all the rest and was teased and, and mercilessly taunted and abused because it was different and it was ugly to their eyes and so on and so forth. And he goes through his life and then finally realizes when he joins a flock of swans and is immediately accepted and he looks in the reflection and sees that he was a swan all along. Well, of course, he was an ugly duck because he was a swan, you know. And we talked about that story. We talked about Cinderella. We talked about the Frog Prince. We talked about Luke Skywalker. We talked about Neo and the Matrix all being the same story told over and over again. And from time immemorial to now, we've been telling the same story. Why? Because it's each one of our stories. Each one of us is a swan. Each one of us, the slipper fits. Each one of us is a prince or a princess. Each one of us has royal blood flowing in our veins because we are our father's child, who is the king. What does it take for us to get to understand that? What does it take for us to finally realize who we are? As Merton said, that we're all walking around shining like the sun. What does it take for us to understand that about ourselves? And especially, and in conjunction, with everyone else that we encounter and pass, no matter who they are. They also have royal blood. The slipper fits them as well. They are swans. This breakthrough, this spiritual breakthrough that we're all looking toward, that we're here to try to engender in our lives is about breaking through to that reality, breaking through to that understanding, to see things in that particular way. All the great mystics Looked at life this way. It's the inevitable conclusion that you reach when you finally do step away, step away from your egoic mind, the part of you that thinks in dualities, the part of you that is always comparing and contrasting and putting things in separate camps for easy storage and retrieval so that we can survive and react quickly in life. That's what our minds do, but when you step away from all that noise, you step away from all that separation. And remember, separation is sin. When you step away from that, There is this unitive reality that starts to take place. Now, the mystics always saw two paths to get to this kind of transformation, this epiphany, this this knowing that we're talking about. And that's the path of great love, which we all like and understand and want to embrace. And then the path of great suffering, which none of us want to embrace, of course. Why? Why would there be these two paths, the path of great love and the path of great suffering, that takes us into this spiritual understanding? Because it's only those two, love and suffering, that are powerful enough to crack open this egoic container that we're in. Only powerful enough to strip away our illusions about ourselves, what we have come to understand and believe about ourselves about life, about everything. It's our worldview. It's everything that we think we know. Great love breaks that wide open. When you fall in love, all of that goes away and it feels great. But guess what? Great suffering does the same thing and it feels terrible. But great love and great suffering have the ability, the power to break down that dualistic thinking to break down the ego's defenses, and to open us up to the mystery, the paradox that really is our life in God. God will never be able to be viewed dualistically. As soon as we put him into words, he's not there anymore. In order to really have that unitive perception that we're talking about, that can't be put into words, it can only be experienced at moments, is to go through that gauntlet great love, great suffering to find out that everything is really one thing everything is God everything is the love of God we are the substance of that but that is a journey itself how we actually get there when Jesus came back from the wilderness he stated his identity didn't he? And the best way that he stated it in words is that I and the Father are one. Now, we hear those words and we think, okay, you know, that sounds great. I like that. We talk about being joined at, at the hip with a person. I talk about being joined at the hip with Nina for 15 years. You know, We're joined to our spouses. And so we think of it in human terms. But this goes so much deeper than that. When Jesus says that I and the Father are one, He's talking about that all of his meaning, all of his purpose, all of his identity is tied up in his experience of the Father and the Father's love, that he really doesn't even exist except in that Father, in the Father's love. He tries to put it in words. He says, I don't do anything of my own initiative. All I do is what the Father tells me to do. I and the Father are one. He's trying to say that everything that He is is subsumed into, is one with the Father. He only sees Himself or understands of Himself in terms of the Father, in terms of this unseen oneness. That's it, because the actual oneness we're talking about here remains unseen. Everything we see is dualistic, everything we see is diversity. Separate form and function. Underneath that, unseen, is the oneness. Which, if you think about it, is a perfect definition of love, isn't it? Unseen oneness. The identification with the beloved that Merton talks about, that's love. It is connecting on that deeper level, understanding that we are one in the same, so that all of our behavior and eventually all our feelings flow from that oneness, from that unity. That's what's at stake here, being able to live that way, even when we can't see how it's possible. So as a path to this kind of transformation we're talking about, as a path to breaking through the ugly duckling syndrome and being able to see ourselves as the swan, to be able to see ourselves as one with the Father, love makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, love, yeah, love, let's go. All you need is love. But what about suffering? How does that really fit into the scenario here we're talking about? Because we can fall in love easily with our children. First time you see that little face, right? It's just automatic. Everything flows out of you. There is a oneness. There is a connection there. And we can easily fall in love with pretty people, people we're attracted to. That's easy enough. And we can fall in love with people who love us, who have that caring, who can see us and... and, and, are there constantly for us we can fall in love with them that's easy enough but what about the enemy what about the one that we don't get what about the one that we don't like what about the one that seems disgusting to us what about the one that is unlawful what about the one that is breaking every rule in the book what about the one that just stands outside the camp how in the world are we going to get to love them How are we going to get to be able to see the unseen unity between us and those that we don't like? How do we bridge that? See, the truth is that we won't, we can't know the Father that Jesus talks about until we do, until we can see the unseen unity between us, the unseen oneness. Because that's what the Father's love is all about. The Father's love is completely without degree. The Father's love is completely indiscriminate. It falls on the just and the unjust, the pretty and the ugly, it falls on everyone. If we're going to understand who the Father is, we have to experience that kind of oneness and unity and connection. And further, we can't know ourselves until we know the Father because just like Jesus our identity will make no sense apart from the Father's identity from ultimate reality that's where we're trying to go how do we get there well now enter suffering right suffering can take us to love by opening us up and love always takes us to suffering You guys know that, right? As soon as you fall in love with something, you're going to get hurt. That's just the way it is because nothing stays the same. We fall in love with a snapshot. The snapshot doesn't stay the same. It changes and we feel that loss and our hearts get broken. To open ourselves up to love is in the same breath or at least the next breath to open ourselves up to suffering. That's just the way it works, the way it has to work. Why? What do love and suffering have in common that they should be so linked this way? What they have in common is that when we are in the midst of either one of them, we are not in control. We're not in control. In fact, love and suffering take us out of control. That's their function. Now, in love, we give our control. We give our hearts to the beloved, right? In suffering, suffering is when we find out we're not in control. It's when we realize that we're not in control because we wouldn't choose this otherwise. In suffering, if you think about it, we're actually practicing, we're training to be out of control, to be vulnerable. We're training and we're practicing to be in love when we are suffering that suffering, that heartbreak breaks down the walls that we construct in order to defend ourselves, to stay apart, right, to stay safe, to stay competitive with each other. Those are all the walls, that's the illusion, that's the, 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 the crusty exterior of the ego that we create in order to be able to survive and find advantage in our lives. But suffering breaks that down. Love breaks that down. When we're in the throes of either, it's almost like we're putting on x-ray glasses and we can suddenly see the frame, right down to the frame of the house. Or we can see right down to the skeleton, the bones of every person, where everything is the same. It's the exterior of things that divide us, the exterior of things that we judge to be different. But as soon as we're in that state of love or suffering, we're seeing right down to the oneness, the intrinsic oneness, that sameness that we all share, but we've got to be ready to see. This doesn't just happen, because if we encounter suffering and we're still too fearful, if we encounter suffering and we're still in the throes of that kind of fear, then it can lead to anger, then it can lead to bitterness, then it can lead to resentment and a sort of permanent victimhood. Suffering will take us there if it's coming from a place of fear. And that is a purpose of spiritual formation. What we're doing here, what we're trying to do, is to make ourselves ready to see what suffering is trying to teach us. What it can teach us if we would only let it. Now, why would I say that? That suffering is there to teach us? I <laughs> mean, not suffering is there to teach us, suffering is just there. Are we willing to be taught by suffering? Because I'll tell you what, newsflash, life is hard. Life is difficult. But it's hard and it's difficult for a reason. If we can't see the reason that life is constructed the way it is, why it is a series of problems one after another, why it is always so difficult, why are we always feeling like we're pushing the, the rock up the hill only to have it roll back down again. If we can't see the reason why that is, then we will be suffering, and we will only see suffering as evil. And we will do everything that we can to avoid it. Now, for many people, God can't even be God the way we understand God if evil exists if suffering exists, right? That's the old theodicy argument. If God is all good and God is all powerful, yet evil exists, yet suffering exists, then you can have any two, but you can't have all three. Why would a all good God allow the kind of suffering that we see going around us in our lives, in the lives of others globally? All these questions arise if we continue to see suffering as only evil. But if we're gonna break through spiritually, to this place that Jesus is trying to lead us, to be able to see past the ugly duckling exteriors of not only people, but circumstances, all the way to God, to the royalty that's underneath, then we need to deeply understand the place that suffering has in our lives and to stop fighting it, stop trying to avoid it so that it can do its work in us. This is what all the great teachers are telling us. This is what Jesus is telling us over and over again. I wanted to read just a little bit to see if we can drive this point home. And the first come, first little paragraph comes from the book that we're reading on Wednesday nights, Falling Upward by Richard Rohr. But here he's, he's talking about Carl Jung, the great father of, of psychology in the last century. And the name of the chapter is Necessary Suffering, okay? So... We're getting more appropriate, more relevant as we go. He writes, Carl Jung said that so much unnecessary suffering, unnecessary suffering, comes into the world because people will not accept the legitimate suffering that comes from being human. Get that? He says that so much unnecessary suffering comes into the world because people will not accept the legitimate suffering that comes from being human. In fact, he said, neurotic behavior is usually a result of refusing that legitimate suffering. Ironically, this refusal of the necessary pain of being human brings the person to ten times more suffering in the long run. It is no surprise that the first and always unwelcome message in male initiation rites is life is hard. We really are our own worst enemy when we deny this. Now, that's going to lead us right into Scott Peck, writing in the 70s, The Road Less Traveled. The very opening paragraph of his book is, Life is difficult. That's it. Period. This is a great truth. One of the greatest truths. It is a great truth because once we truly see this truth, we transcend it. Once we see the truth, we transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult once we truly understand and accept it, the life is no longer difficult. Because once it is accepted, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. Now, that may be a bit of an overstatement, but you get where he's going, right? Most do not fully see this truth, that life is difficult. Instead, they moan more or less incessantly, noisily or subtly, about the enormity of their problems, their burdens, and their difficulties, as if life were generally easy as life should be easy. They voice their belief, noisily or subtly, that their difficulties represent a unique kind of affliction that should not be, and that has somehow been especially visited upon them, or else upon their families, their tribe, their class, their nation, their race, or even their species, but not on others. I know about this moaning because I've done my share. Life is a series of problems. Do we want to moan about them, or do we want to solve them? What makes life difficult is that the process of confronting and solving problems is a painful one. Problems, depending on their nature, evoke in us frustration, or grief, or sadness, or loneliness, or guilt, or regret, or anger, fear, anxiety, anguish, despair. These are uncomfortable feelings, often very uncomfortable, often as painful as any kind of physical pain, sometimes equaling the very worst kind of physical pain. Indeed, it is because of the pain that events or conflicts engender in us all. It is because the pain that events or conflicts engender in us all that we call them problems in the first place. And since life poses an endless series of problems, life is always difficult and full of pain as well as joy. Yet it is in this whole process of meeting and solving problems that life has its meaning. And those are just the first four paragraphs of his book. But you see how central this is? Both Jung, Rohr, Peck, are all saying that there is necessary and legitimate suffering in life. Necessary and legitimate suffering. Now suffering is suffering. It's going to feel the same no matter what, right? But if it's built into the fabric of our lives, it's not so much about the different kinds of suffering, whether we want to label it as necessary or unnecessary or legitimate or whatever. It's not so much about that. It's more about what we create around the suffering that we have to encounter. The suffering happens naturally. But what do we create around it? What is the attitude? What is the mindset? How do we deal with the suffering? I suppose we make the suffering legitimate by letting it help us break down and crack open that egoic container, to crack open those illusions, to crack open those perceptions that we have about ourselves, to let us break through into the unity that Jesus is talking about. We can do that and make it legitimate. Or we can fight it, we can resist it and make it unnecessary. Because both legitimate pain and the pain of our own resistance will be combined when we do that. I've been saying for years, you know, change is inevitable, but change doesn't hurt. Resistance to change is excruciating. It's along those same lines. Now, suffering is always going to hurt. But it's going to hurt a lot worse if we're resisting it at the same time because then we're enduring the pain of the resistance, the pain that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. At the same time, we're enduring whatever it is that has afflicted us. The more we fight suffering, the more that we imagine that it's evil, the more that we try to avoid it, the more that we try to pray it away, You know, get God on our side to make us not suffer anymore. The more that we're going to become angry, the more that we're going to become bitter, resentful, the more that we're going to become those permanent victims in life. But to begin to see the opportunity that exists in the suffering that befalls us, that we can learn and we can deepen our relationship with God, that changes everything. Now, that doesn't mean that we go look for suffering. Believe me, we don't have to. It's going to find us. Every day, every week, it's going to find us, and sometimes more than others. But I suppose the next question would be, well, then did God bring it? If it's useful, did God bring us the suffering? Does God give us the suffering? See, that's a difficult one, because if you start seeing God in that role of giving you suffering, it becomes a lot harder to trust God especially when it comes down to the severity of the suffering. Did God give Nina cancer to teach her or us something? Did God take that little boy on the freeway when the rage-filled driver shot the car? I mean, how do you handle situations like that if God is the actor, if God is the one giving the suffering? And, of course, the Bible talks about this. we don't have to guess. It's right there in print. Black print. No, God doesn't give us suffering. Let's take a look at James one thirteen. I'm using the Bible in Basic English, the BBE version. You probably got the NASB up there. So mine says, "Let no man say when he is tested, I am tested by God, for it is not possible for God to be tested by evil, and He Himself." Puts no man or woman to such a test. Okay, you probably have tempted up there, right? All right. The word there in Greek, paradozo, it can mean to tempt. But it primarily means to test. To set a trial for, to prove, and also to tempt. It's like your your fishing line is so many pounds test. That's the kind of test we're talking about. You've got to stretch that line until it breaks to know how much it tests at, right? These things that we go through in life are trials and tests for us. They are painful in and of themselves because a test and a trial is always painful because it's stretching you. It's stretching you to the next place that you're going to be or to find out where you really are in life. But let no man say when he goes through this trial or this testing that God is doing it to him or to her because he says it's not possible for God to be tested by evil and he himself puts no human being to such test the suffering's not from God the trial or the test that creates the suffering is not from God the loss that we experience that creates the suffering is not from God but haven't you heard that God will never give us more than we can handle? God will give it, never give us more than we can bear? Haven't seen that on a bumper sticker someplace? You know? And we assume that's in the Bible, right? It says right there, God is giving us, but he's not going to give us more than we can handle. Now, when I first heard that, I don't know about you, but I started to feel like a rat in a maze in a laboratory. And up on the catwalk, there's God in the white lab coat and the clipboard. And he's figuring out the exact amount of suffering that I can bear before I break. And he's going to take me right up to that line, but no further. Now that's a hard God to trust. That's a hard God to like. How do you like a God like that? How do you trust a God like that? What in the world are we talking about here? We've got to be careful with our words because they paint attitudes in us. They paint deep beliefs in us that carry on unconsciously. And we're not even aware of how they're coloring everything that we do if we think god really is a mad scientist up there com- conducting these experiments on us that's going to be a very different attitude through life especially when life gets difficult that saying is not in the bible the closest thing to it is first corinthians 10:13 but let's take a look at what first corinthians 10:13 actually says this is paul right no temptation that is the same word as parazzo that we had in james so no test no trial has overtaken you but such as is common to humankind and god is faithful who will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able but with the testing with the trial will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it You see, the test of the suffering is not what God gives us. The test of the suffering is what's common to humankind. We, as a species, living here in physical existence, just living life, are going to encounter what we encounter. And if it frustrates our agenda, if it chips away at our sense of identity, if the loss is so deep that it does these things, it's going to create suffering. And it's going to be a trial or a test. If we can move through it, if we can get to the other side, we will be at a different plane. We will be at a different level. We will be able to see more from God's perspective because we are seeing more of the unity, that unseen oneness that we're talking about here. It just comes with physical life. It's baked in the cake. God doesn't give it to us. Just like James is saying, But we can endure it. We can escape it. We can pass through it if we can see God's presence in the midst of the trial, the test, and the suffering that comes with it. God is always present. If we imagine he's not because this trial or this test is God's vengeance on us, judgment on us, in any way removing God from the equation, then suddenly our escape seems to be gone too. We don't see the way through anymore. God's not giving out suffering and measuring just the right amount. But we can always get through what is in front of us with God's empowerment, with God's presence, and our attitude toward it. (coughs) Jesus is very clear here. Suffering is a part of life. It's necessary to our purpose. Take a look at John 16 at verse 33. (coughs) In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He's basically saying the same thing as Paul, isn't he? You're going to have difficult times. This is what happens. But I've overcome the world. I am still here. I am present Connecting with me takes us through and transcends into something else that overcomes everything that comes with this physical system. At John 12, starting in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. (coughs) Suffering right now, before your very eyes. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And here's a variation at Luke, uh, chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would come after me, that is, follow me, follow my ways, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I knew you were doing that, buddy. Thank you. <coughs> I don't know if it's gonna hit the spot, but we'll try. <clears throat> See what Jesus is doing here? He's giving us two really great metaphors. The seed that has to you know, it's it's all nice and of itself, kinda depending on what kind of seed it is. You know, it's intact, it's hard, you know, it's 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 its own thing. Until you put it in the ground and you give it a little water and then it breaks open, it becomes not itself anymore, but it germinates and becomes a plant. It has to die as itself, as a seed, in order to fulfill its purpose as a plant. Jesus on the cross, or this metaphor of each of us picking up our cross daily, is the image of us cracking ourselves open and dying as we understand ourselves so that we can fulfill our purpose as human beings. It's the same thing. He who finds his life loses it, but he who loses his life finds it. This is that great paradox, this is that mystery. The more we try to find our life, the more we try to stay ourselves as we understand ourselves, the more that we are hardening ourselves to actually fulfilling our purpose in life, which is to lose ourselves in the oneness that is the real fabric of things, in love and in great suffering. They both achieve the same goal for us. These two great metaphors. The cross is the overarching metaphor and symbol of Christianity, obviously, but it also is the the metaphor for this necessary suffering that we're talking about. Because without the cross, without the laying down that ultimate vulnerability that Jesus achieves on 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 the cross at Calvary, there is no life. There is no love that is possible. No one has greater love than this, and they lay down their life for a friend. We have to fall to the ground. We have to become not ourselves as we imagine ourselves in order to connect in this way. But Jesus also has another great metaphor, a great symbol for the laying down that he's talking about, the descent before the ascent, the necessary suffering that we've been talking about here. Take a look at Luke 11. Starting at verse 29, he's sparring with the Pharisees at this point, as he's wont to do. And he says, if anyone, I'm sorry, he says, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. Now, remember evil, bisha in Aramaic? It means not ready for prime time. It means unripe. It means unable to do the intended purpose. Not evil necessarily in a malicious way but more in the way that you just don't, we just don't know what we're doing yet. Okay, so this is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, right? In that immaturity, in that inability, looking for some kind of sign. Please give me a sign. How many times have we asked for a sign? Show me the way, the risk-free way, the way of not suffering so that I can follow that. This evil unripe generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah for as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh so will the son of man be to this generation so here we got this sign of Jonah what's that kind of cryptic as usual Jesus being a bit cryptic here the sign of Jonah what is that you remember the book of Jonah y'all know Jonah basically the story of Jonah Okay, so Jonah is one of God's prophets, but God calls Jonah to go to the people of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, right? One of the, uh, between the Tigris and Euphrates in the valley there in Mesopotamia, they were the powerhouse, They, they were the superpower of their day, and they were constantly harassing judea constantly harassing the northern kingdom of israel they were the sworn and hated enemies they were known known for their cruelty they were known for their ruthlessness when they put a, a nation down they put it down and they were feared and hated by all the peoples in the local area and god calls jonah to go to nineveh to preach to them to tell them that in 40 days they're going to be overrun so what are you going to do about it Jonah doesn't want to do that because he knows what kind of God God is. He knows that God is merciful. He knows that God will relent. And he wants these people wiped off the face of the earth. So he says, there's no way I'm going. So he takes off for Tarshish. Nobody actually knows where Tarshish is, but some scholars think it was on the east coast of Spain. So that means he's going to go as far as he can possibly go across the Mediterranean, right? From the Levant. From, from Judea to Spain to get away from God, to get away from having to do this horrible thing, and hopefully then the kingdom will fall. But as soon as he gets in the boat, the storm comes. It is an unnatural storm. It's so great. All the the, uh, the hands on the boat are, are just terrified. And they're realizing this is no normal storm. So somebody here engendered this. God is after somebody on this boat, and they're trying to figure out who it is. And all the time, Jonah it went down to the bottom, to the hold, and he's sleeping down there where all this is going on. And finally, the captain comes down and says, what are you doing sleeping here? You know, we got, a, we got a real crisis going on. You got to be a part of this. So they decide to finally throw lots. And of course, it falls on Jonah. So Jonah is the one. And when they confront him, he cops to it. and He says, yeah, it's me. You know, God's after me because I'm running and I'm trying to do this and that. <clears throat> And so they said, what are we going to do about it? He says, the only thing you can do is throw me overboard and then the storm will cease. Well, we can't do that. So they row harder and they're really trying to outrun the storm and they realize they can't do it. So reluctantly, they throw him overboard and the storm stops and everything is fine. God sends, we always think of it as a whale, but really the words are in Hebrew it's just a big fish. The big fish comes and swallows Jonah up and carries him around in his belly for three days and three nights. And while Jonah is in there, He's praying to God the whole time, you know, and asking God to deliver him. And God does. And the fish comes and vomits Jonah back up on the shore, right back where he started. And God says again, now, are you ready? <laughs> Some people think he was all bleached white by now, by the inside, of the, of you know. It's just like us, to take this literally, right? Did he really get swallowed by a whale? Did he really? You know, think metaphorically now. Think spiritually now. He went into the belly of the beast. He went into the darkness, his dark night of the soul, because he wasn't fulfilling his purpose any longer in life. Are you ready now to go to never? All right, he goes. He does what he's supposed to do. And you know what? Of all the prophets in the Old Testament... There is only one that the people actually listened to, and it's Jonah. And he's talking to Assyrians. He's not even talking to their own people, the Jews. And the people realized, oh my gosh, what are we doing? And so they all went into fasting mode. They put on sackcloth and ashes. They even did it to their animals. They put sackcloth and ashes on the animals, and they made the animals fast as well and nobody was eating the king heard what was going on he put on sackcloth and ashes and he went into fasting mode and jonah is just saying looking around he goes outside the city gates sets up a little booth for himself next to a a tree and he's sitting there waiting to see if god is going to rain down the fire and brimstone on this horrible place but it doesn't happen and jonah is really angry And this takes us to the last chapter. There are only four chapters in Jonah, and it's really short. You ought to go back and read it. You can do it in seven and a half minutes. But here's the whole chapter four, starting at verse one. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there and sat under it in the shade till he should see what should become of the city. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. I kind of love Jonah, right? And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? (laughs) And also much cattle. That's the end of the book, the last lines of the book. I just got to love this stuff. But look look what the Lord is saying to Jonah here. It is so perfect. 120 persons who don't know their right hand from their left. This is just like Jesus saying from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. They're bisha. They're immature. They're unripe. They don't get it yet. Should I destroy them because they don't understand? And yet you are suffering because of the plant, and you're not suffering at the thought of these people losing their lives and the city being destroyed and also much cattle? This is Jonah's moment. Who is really being saved here in the book of Jonah? Nineveh? So You've got to look beyond and see, this is Jonah's moment. The book is about Jonah, primarily. Now, we don't get to see his response here. All we get as far as the cattle, and it cuts off. How did Jonah ultimately react? What was his response? We as readers of this book are left to imagine what Jonah's response might be and at the same time to wonder what would our response be for those people that we are absolutely sure deserve fire and brimstone from the heavens, who deserve to be plowed under because of their evil deeds. You fill in the blanks of who and what that is, who those people are collectively, individually in your life. What is our response when God says they don't know what they're doing? Can you see the oneness with them as fellow human beings when you don't know what you're doing? And I have mercy on you. That there is this unseen oneness. There is this connection that the suffering can lay bare in your life. Are you willing? Are you ready to be able to do this? We're left to imagine God's question for ourselves as we're left to imagine it for Jonah at the same time. The suffering, these trials, testings, these difficult problems of life and the pain they cause, if we resist, if we try to flee, like Jonah, it puts us into the belly of the beast. It cuts us off from our source. It cuts ourselves off from the escape that Paul talks about, from the trial and from the temptation. It creates in us that deep neurotic pain that Jung talks about and can even take us to psychotic pain as well if we let it go long enough. And even when we turn back to our principles, turn back to following our faith, as Jonah does, ultimately, even if we carry on, even if we show up, even if we start to do the work, you know, God is still way out ahead of us. He's still in another league. He's still in another playing field trying to show us this unity, this connection, this love, this completely degreeless place. It's kind of like Rumi's field, right? There is a field out beyond right doing and wrong doing. I'll meet you there. There's that field out there beyond everything that we think is fair and just and right. That if we can let go of the things that we so tightly cling to, we can get there as well. And this love of God, this completely unjust love of God, covers the Assyrians, even in all of their cruelty. And it covers everyone and everything that we can still only see as ugly ducklings. But until we can see the swan in them, see the royalty in them and in everyone, then we're never going to be able to see the swan in ourselves. We're never going to believe it and trust it at the level that is life-changing. Jesus knows this. This is what he's talking about. That cracking open our ego to laying down our defenses and our illusions is the only way to know ourselves. And great suffering opens us up to the great love that is the way of Jesus and the way of all the mystics. Now, the best communities among us, the best communities that we're a part of, are preparing us and training us for life's difficulties. Not the easy parts. We can handle that on our own. But the really responsible communities, the indigenous ones, the ancient ones, they always prepared the people for the difficulties of life. Because if they were going to survive as a collective, they had to survive individually. And that's the way that they were taught how to survive how to thrive, how to get through life's difficulties. They train us for that. What do we have left in our culture? I said, we got the military, okay? They're certainly going to train you to survive the difficulties because that's their purpose, right? We've got police. We've got fire. We've got paramedics, EMTs. They're going to be trained for the difficulties because that is what they're going to be facing. That's what they're getting paid to face, Our churches used to do this for us. All of us, spiritually speaking. The ancient ones did it. They had rites of passage. They had liturgy and ritual. They had the discipline, strong discipline of spiritual formation. What you had to do in order to just be baptized into the faith was a whole process. It was a journey of itself. It was a rite of passage, and it included all these parts to it. And they used it with the metaphor, the paradox of this descent, of the cross, the via negativa, the negative way, the way of emptying things out, the differences between consolations, the good feelings we get as part of our spirituality, and then the desolations that we necessarily needed to fall into, where all that was apparently taken away. All of this imagery, metaphor, symbolism and actual practice was preparing each adherent for the difficulties of life, how they could get through it intact with their faith and their principles and their sense of connection. How does this happen? It happens when we train for it, when our attitude is such that we're not surprised when difficulty happens, but we know what to do with it. But see, we've lost all of that. We've lost it all in the wishful illusion that suffering is evil and somehow avoidable and that if we just pray hard enough, God can take it from us. Now, I don't know how this sounds to you. It might sound really depressing and I'm sorry if it does. But let's take that and try to turn it around. Anything that we're talking about here, anything that I am interpreting for you that Jesus is talking about, the scriptures are talking about and all of the saints of the church are talking about, is not going to add an iota of suffering to your plate that you wouldn't otherwise encounter anyway. What it's actually giving you is the way of escape. That if your attitude can change about the suffering that you endure, that you encounter, then you actually can endure it to stop resisting it as if it shouldn't exist in your life. Enough to be able to see God's presence in the midst of it. To see God's presence and purpose in the pain that you're going through is all we need to be able to persevere, to get through the pain. And in doing that over and over in our lives, that's how we find ourselves. We find the Father. We understand who the Father really is. Always the way of escape, escape through the difficulties. And as we find ourselves in him, connected to one with then we find the swan in ourselves we find our own royalty in this bargain in this transformation if we can transform literally if we can transform our view of suffering then the suffering that we encounter can transform us and point us straight to the great love that is our father This is Jesus' way. If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to follow all of him. The descent and the ascent on the other side. The great love, yes, of course, but the great suffering that teaches us the depth of that love. Let's pray. Father, it continues to just confound us the depth of your love. How almost humanly impossible it is for our arms to get fully around the depth of your love. And so we keep inching up toward it. We get closer step by step and layer by layer. And we call on you for the help that we need, the strength and the courage that we need to keep picking up our cross each and every day, each and every moment, to keep letting the seed fall to the ground, to risk losing whatever it is that we think of ourselves, to open ourselves up to the oneness that is why we're here. Father, thank you for this gift of your love. Thank you even for the gift of the suffering that it takes to make us aware of the depth of the love. Help us to find within the suffering that we endure and the people that we're enduring it with, the grace to be able to endure it with you, to be a help to each other with the purpose ever before us of what it is we're doing and where it's taking us in you. Thank you, Lord, for your love and constancy. Never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.